These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, and Nephtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join their enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict with them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Phithon and Massa Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Siphar and the other Puah, when you serve as midwives to the, the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children and why don't you let the male children live? The midwife said to the Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Amen. Great. Well, if you can get your eyes to that reading, you'll find it helpful to follow that along. Make sure that uh, I am following it. Uh, you'll, you'll have that on the sheet as you've came in if, if you've received that. If not, there, there should be some Bibles in the pews in front of you. It's the second book in well, a good question to ask at the beginning of a new series is why this book? And we thought a little bit about that just earlier on, but why Exodus? Well, Exodus might be one of the most important books in the whole of the Bible. The book of Exodus sets out the way in which God gathers a people, saves a people, provides for a people, and is to be worshipped by his people. And so understanding Exodus 
helps us understand all of the Bible better. But most of all, the experience of the people in the book of Exodus is one that we will identify with too. It's a bit like the program Grand Designs. Um, If you've not sort of watched this before, it's basically people with more money but less sense than they think. And what these people think is that they can build a better house than builders, planners, and architects ever could. And it always ends up that they realize that it's much harder, it takes much longer, and it costs much more than they thought that it would. And they usually end up living in the bottom of the garden in a caravan for some time. This is one couple who lived, no joke, for three years in that caravan. And that's the bit that I enjoy. Um, Because I sit there and think, ha ha, serves you right. But that's the book of Exodus. You have the plans, work has started, it's starting to take shape. But for now, you're sat at the bottom of the garden in the caravan, dreaming of what will be. That's Exodus. And I think that's probably us too. And yet we see that God will call them, God will save them, God will bring them out. And then they'll have to wait a little while. And in the meantime, they'll wander in a land in which they don't belong and that isn't their home. Isn't that our experience? That's why Peter will open his first letter by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Those living in a land they don't really belong in and that isn't really their home anymore. Exodus is our experience too. So this morning what we'll see is God's blessing and Pharaoh's oppression. And if you turn to those first seven verses, that first sort of paragraph, we'll think about upheaval and blessing. That's what we see there. Genesis ended with a reminder. A reminder that God had saved the people by their entry into Egypt. And that secondly, he would bring them up out of Egypt again. The end of the book of Genesis focuses on the story of Joseph, Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers, and yet he'd risen to prominence in Egypt. He'd served in Pharaoh's court and saved his family from the threat of famine when they came begging to him. And he summarizes all of that, chapter 50, verse 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people, that is, the whole nation, really, should be kept alive as they are today. And there's two points there, that God had saved Joseph and all the people of Israel by bringing them to Egypt. But Genesis closes with Joseph reassuring his brothers of their eventual exit from Egypt. Verse 24, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham. God had saved Joseph and all the people of Israel by bringing them to Egypt. But secondly, the reminder is God would save his people by bringing them up out of Egypt. And that is the paradox of Exodus, that this is the place in which God has brought them to save them. And yet he's going to bring them out to save them. 
The, the evil they will face, God uses for good as he forges his nation. And that is true for us too. So it begins, these are the names of the sons of Israel. And this reminds us of God's promise to build a family. This is maybe one of the most important promises, not just in this book, not just through the Old Testament, but through the whole scripture. It's this promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And there's the first bit of that promise. We'll keep coming back to it week after week. But there's the first bit that God promises a place to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. That is, he's going to make a people. He's given them a place. He's making a people. And then thirdly, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I'll curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is, they'll be under God's rule. God's making a people, putting them in a place, setting them under his rule. And this beginning tells us that God is fulfilling this promise. These are the names of the sons of Israel. And they're all here. They've all come with Jacob. They're all in this together. This was a collectivist society. What that means is life was organized around family, clan, and tribe. In fact, most of the world today still is, but we live and uh, sat here today in, in the Western world, in which we are a very individualist society. That is that life is organised around the idea of do good by yourself, don't let your family, tribe, clan get in the way of what's good for you. It's two very different ways of seeing the world. What it means is that it was very natural for these people here, if not all of us, that all the family would go with the father figure, Jacob. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. It's not exactly a huge nation out of Jacob's sons. But here they are. And it tells us God has been fulfilling that promise to build a nation out of Jacob's sons. And then look at verse 6. Because here's a milestone moment. Then Joseph died. And all his brothers. And all that generation. Their figurehead was gone. Joseph, after the death of Jacob, his father, was a de facto patriarch, father figure. But he had also built very good relations with the power structures in Egypt. And it was how they had had favor in those early days. And with the changing of a generation comes a change of perspective. And we see that today. Generations think and they live and they see the world differently. Here's one silly example. The way different generations wear jeans. And you can see that the ratio of exposed thigh to cloth increases exponentially as you get towards Gen Z. As you go back sort of through the generations, you, you have some who won't even wear a pair of jeans, let alone a pair of jeans that has any sort of a hole in. But the further along you seem to get, the less cloth you seem to get with it. Generations change. 
They see the world differently. They live in the world differently. And this little verse is alerting us to a fact that there is a shift in the generations here. And we're going to see that pan out. Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. And if that generation has died out, the question is, what was becoming of God's people and God's promises? So, the author tells us, verse 7, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Come back to that sentence to read it again because five times it tells us one simple thing. They grew. That generation died out, but they grew. The people of Israel were fruitful, one. And two, increased greatly. They three, multiplied. They four, grew exceedingly strong so that five, the lamb was filled with them. In the midst of great social upheaval, we can be confident that God will continue to build his kingdom. And yet God's blessing his people will sometimes provoke opposition from the kingdom of darkness. And that's what we'll see next. The people of Israel face a generational shift, yet there's a steady blessing from the hand of God in a foreign land. There's upheaval and blessing. But secondly, there's fear and loathing. And if you turn your eyes to verses 8 to 14, that's what we'll think about here. There's upheaval and blessing, but then fear and loathing. We all have fears, don't we? I'm pretty scared of heights uh, myself. Uh, Karis is really scared of spiders, and I never really realized how much so until we were married. And one of the things about our phobias is, this is sort of fascinating, is that our language and our actions switch because we're just as likely to say, I'm scared or I hate spiders. The two things kind of interchange. They're seen as almost the same, so that the solution to being scared of spiders isn't just avoiding them, but I'm employed to uh, kill them. What we fear, we so often end up hating. And what we hate is so often what we fear. And here we have fear and loathing. After the blessing of God in verses 1 to 7, we have the introduction of the tyranny that Israel needs freeing from. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. There's a change within the people of God, but there's a change in Israel too. There's a generation that's died out in Israel, but there's also a generation that's died out in Egypt. And here's the significance of it for the people. There arose a king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. And all the favor that they had relied on through Joseph's service for Egypt is lost. I was watching a roundtable discussion about this, and um, a Jewish scholar said that this verse here would be in the top ten verses of all of the Torah in the life of Jewish people in terms of its significance. And in a few words, it marks a monumental shift in perspective. Because the problem, just to be clear, just cast your eyes down to that verse again the problem to be clear is not that Egypt had forgot Israel's history 
That would be understandable. The problem is that they forgot their own history, how instrumental Joseph had been in saving Egypt. It was Joseph's plans under the hand of sovereign God and in his grace that had saved Egypt. And they forgot their own history. And there is a reminder and a warning not to forget the past and not to disown the past because they may not be perfect, as is so much our want in 2023. They have forgotten their past, and that's a big problem. The first sign of tyranny is a lack of honour and respect for the past, so that all that matters is the now. And listen to what that means when someone says that. When all that matters is the now, what that means is all that matters is me and what I tell you. That's tyranny. Verse 9, he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. We need to stop and ask, is that true? The people are too many and too mighty for us. Is that true? No. No. Israel has grown. God has blessed them. But they have nothing like the power of Egypt. See, the second sign of tyranny is a desire of those who actually are in power to present themselves as victims. These people are too many and too mighty for us. We must do something. We'll be overpowered. That's tyranny. Verse 10, he says, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us. And let's just hit pause again there, because this was the essence of anti-Semitism then and ever since. This idea that somehow they will turn against us and overpower us and overthrow us. And here, it is and it isn't true. God has blessed Israel as his people, but they massively exaggerate. Secondly, we see there's an element there of fear, isn't there? Because they're God's people being blessed by God, it produces a fear in others. And yet there's also a loathing, isn't there? They're blessed by God in a way that Egypt are not. And they have an identity that Egypt does not. And this sort of argument that somehow, some way, they'll rise up to positions of prominence and overthrow us is the same argument every time, even in modern history. Here's just a few examples of anti-Semitic posters and works through the 19th and 20th century. Is in America, in France, uh, Germany and Slovakia as well. And here's a map of all the places just across Europe throughout history where Jewish people have been exiled. Nietzsche reflected on why this was the case. He said, the whole problem of the Jews exists only in nation states. For here their energy and higher intelligence, their accumulated capital of spirit and will, gathered from generation to generation through a long schooling in suffering, must become so preponderant as to arouse mass envy and hatred. In almost all contemporary nations, therefore, in direct proportion to the degree, degree to which they act up nationalistically, the literary obscenity of leading the Jews to slaughter as scapegoats of every conceivable public and internal misfortune is spreading. 
He said that in 1886. And sadly, it only was further proven to be true. Here it is then, the essence of anti-Semitism then and ever since, that somehow they will overpower us and overthrow us when war comes. The third sign of tyranny here is a power structure that will happily present to the public a scapegoat to fear and to hate. And look at their concern, because the end of verse 10 is very telling. I think this is the real point, after all, that they're afraid of. And escape from the land. That they might join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Don't miss that little phrase. I think that's key. The real concern is we might lose them. The fourth sign of tyranny is people being used as tools, valuable for their output. It's a fundamentally anti-human sort of view. And to balance it up, we've sort of thought about how some of this happens on the right. Isn't this exactly what happened in Soviet bloc countries? Marxism promises equality across the board. It delivers nothing of the sort. It delivers a fundamentally anti-human view of the world in which you are nothing more than a tool. And that's tyrannical. And now here's the Pharaoh's answer to the problem of the blessing and the expansion of the people of Israel. Look at verse 11. They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And the word is, is weights. It's that he weighed them down. He pushed them down. He crushed the opponent's spirit through labor. And all through history, isn't this what we see? We see it in Germany. We've seen it in Soviet Eastern Europe. We've seen it in China. We've seen it in Cambodia and countless other places too. You crush your opponent's spirit through working them to the bone. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. They build their empire on their back. The city is likely Pi Ramesses, built to honor a line of Pharaohs actually who have that name. And it became for, for a time strategically uh, the capital of Egypt. It was closer to where their enemies were and might attack, uh, closer to the sea and things, so it was more sort of strategic. Uh, the city wouldn't have been known by this name at this time, but a later editor is helping us by putting this title in. There's sadly not very much archaeological remains of the city, except uh, the feet of a colossal statue to Ramesses, which gives some sort of idea of the, uh, a little bit maybe if you can imagine, um, the kind of grandiosity uh, that the city held. There's also a painting there, sorry, um, just the slide before, uh, by Edward Pointer. This depicts the Jews building these cities. And building an empire off of slavery has happened through history, hasn't it? And we have to confront a little bit our own more recent history, I think, perhaps, don't we? And the text, by the way, assumes that this is wrong, which, by the way, would not have been necessarily logical at the time. People would have not necessarily read that and, and recognized that it would be logical that slavery would be wrong. But this text assumes that it is. And we have to maybe reflect on some of our own history. Think of Britain and how our empire, as it was, was built off of the back of slavery across the globe. Think of the British East India Company in the East. Or think of colonies in the West Indies 
And one of the things this book will do is confront us about some of our own history and some of our own present, I think, and cause us to maybe just think a little bit about the tyranny we may have accepted. The fifth sign of tyranny is a society that is completely self-congratulatory. And that's what's happening here. Cities built to honour these pharaohs. And all the effort is spent to honour itself. But, listen to this note of hope here, verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. The full might of the ruling powers is no match for the might of the blessing of God on his people. And the Egyptians were in dread. And here's that connection between fear and loathing. Because there in your English it probably says to you dread, and it can be translated that way. But in the Hebrew the word is loathing. Hatred. Fear and hatred are so very closely connected. And the continued blessing of God, despite the oppression of Pharaoh adds to the problem because it produces even more fear. So what do they do? Verse 13, they ruthlessly, as with cruelty, they made the people of Israel work as slaves. The impression increases and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the fields. Sixth sign of tyranny here is that all your effort is expended for the benefit of those in power over you. The simple but sad and challenging point we see here in these verses is the blessing of God on the people of God leads to a fear and loathing from the kingdom of darkness. There's upheaval and blessing, fear and loathing, and then lastly there's murder and multiplication. I wonder if you ever watch these sort of uh, police dramas on, on TV, on Netflix. Um, one of the things I've noticed about these programmes is the police officers always catch the suspects they're running after, don't they? There's, there's never really an episode where they don't catch them. Uh, I sort of admire the fitness because you look at them and you say, I really didn't expect you to be that sort of in shape. But somehow they always do, don't they? And it always makes me think because I wonder if you have, like me sometimes, from time to time, the dream where it's the complete opposite. You know, you have a chase and you can't possibly keep up. And it doesn't matter what you do, it's like you're running through treacle. Or it's, you, you sort of have a fight but it's like you're underwater and you can't even like, sort of move your arm. Well, here, no matter what Pharaoh seeks to do to oppress the people and to keep them down, he just can't keep a lid on them and he just can't keep up with God's blessing. It's amazing. Then it tells us, verse 15, because the slave driving had not been enough, from verse 12, we reach an inevitable conclusion. He comes to the Hebrew midwives, the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. And isn't it ironic? We're not told who the Pharaoh is. We're told the names of two midwives. It tells you a little something about who's the hero, who's important, who matters, who really has significance at the end of the day. The Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pura, are approached and they're commanded, if it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. And he moves away from just slavery to outright genocide. The way to disarm and destroy a people is to kill the men. Why? Because men are the ones who fight 
when it comes down to it, the men are the ones sent to the front line. And if you kill the men, you can overpower the people. And there's a wickedness there, isn't there? In so many ways. But here's one aspect of the wickedness. Because Pharaoh is offering an empowerment to these women of a sort. He's offering to empower them, but only in order to slaughter children. But look at the midwives' response. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. They're the heroes. And the resistance of these women is made all the more remarkable by how others treated Pharaoh. Here's just a couple of references. This first one is from a character called Rechmeyer, who was a prime minister from around 1479 to 1400 BC with a couple of year gap for an upheaval. He says, what is the king of Upper and Lower Egypt? He is a god by whose dealings one lives, the father and mother of all men, alone by himself, without an equal. Or another, here's the ruler of Giza from around 1350 BC. Who am I? A dog. And what is my house? And what is anything I have that the orders of the king, my lord, the sun from the sky, I should not obey constantly? These are men of some prominence and power and position. And notice how they're completely subservient. And yet, these two brave midwives stand up to Pharaoh. But here's the interesting thing. This story isn't a conflict primarily between Pharaoh and Israel. But a conflict between Pharaoh and God. Pharaoh is trying to take the position that only God can take. And because of that, he is being opposed by God. And we'll find that God will win this fight by a knockout blow. The midwives fear God, not man. And they obey God and resist power. And that causes me to think, how about us? What will we do? when we're put in these kind of positions, who will we obey? Who will we fear? Who will we resist? Who will we serve? Pharaoh's angry, isn't he? Look at verse 19. He demands an explanation for this. Why have they done this? They tell him, verse 19, the Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous, they're lively, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. This is a racial stereotype. This isn't true. I think it's quite important for you to see that, for that to be said. Disappointingly not present in enough commentaries. It's actually questioned that that's, that's not a true line that they give. They're lying to him. This is a racial stereotype, which isn't true. No mother really controls the birth. The child does, really. And there's a trope, even today, isn't there? There's a trope that black people, for example, have a higher pain threshold than white people. It's why, and there's an article even just this week about this, 
They're actually four times more likely to die in the midst of labor because their pain isn't considered as seriously because people are under the false impression that somehow they can take more pain. There's a racial stereotype. It's not true at all. So why do these midwives say something they know to be untrue of their own people? Because these are probably, on balance, Hebrew midwives. It's not completely clear because they're under the command of Pharaoh and that seems strange. It seems more likely that Pharaoh would command Egyptian staff than Hebrew staff. But their names aren't Egyptian in origin. Why do these midwives say this? Something they know not to be true of their own people. Because these midwives know that there is a spirit of racism there in which if they say that, people are ready to believe it. They're ready to believe the racial trope. And so they say, well, these Hebrew women, they're not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous. They give birth before we can even get to them. And yet look at how God responds to these midwives. God dealt well with the midwives. And the summary of why that is, to verse 21, is because the midwives feared God and he gave them families. The midwives risked a lot in standing up to Pharaoh, but God has blessed them for that faithfulness. And then look at how it ends again. We've heard it before, but we're reminded again, verse 20, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. God continues to fulfill his promise from Genesis 12 to Abraham, that he would build a people, that he'd send them to a place, that they'd be under his good rule. And look at Pharaoh's response, verse 22. Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that's born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And he's hoping now that the group dynamics of commanding all will work. The oppression of Pharaoh ramps up to murder, but as it does so, so does God's multiplication of his people. There is blessing and upheaval, fear and loathing, and murder and multiplication. Exodus is about God rescuing his people from troubles, troubles that are both outside of us and inside of us. And God rescues us from troubles that are outside of us, the brokenness of the world around us, the sin, the sickness, and the suffering that we encounter, all the things that are not good, that God did not create us to experience, but we do. Things that steal our joy, things that separate us from one another, and things that squeeze the life out of us at times. But Exodus is a story that points us to Jesus and is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus left his place of security and comfort beside his father to live beside us. And he fleed himself to Egypt for his life, to be spared from King Herod's murderous rampage. He lived as an exile, lived as a, a refugee, so that it could be said, out of Egypt I called my son again. And Jesus, 
hears, he sees, he understands our suffering because he's been there. And there's coming a day when he will bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, where we'll experience life without all of these struggles, without this brokenness, in the fullness that God intended. Revelation 21 Verse 3 and 4, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He'll dwell with them and they'll be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. He rescues us from troubles that are outside of us. And here through Exodus, we're going to see many of those. And I think we'll have to confront maybe the places in which we see those and experience those today too, that we see troubles outside of us. But he also does that by saving us from troubles inside of us. All the turmoil we see outside of us, all the damage it causes, all those broken ways of seeing the world and seeing other people comes from trouble within us trying to find happiness outside of God we've turned from him and taken his place despite promising joy all of our sin is is delivered to us is emptiness and shame and death by degrees and sin turns us in on ourselves we we wind up sacrificing others for our good and we end up using people the world's problems come from the individual soul, not its collective systems. If you don't renew and restore and redeem the individual soul, what image will you renew the systems into? One that's broken in another way. In Exodus, one of the images for God's rescue is the Passover lamb. The lamb who dies so that you don't have to die. And despite having the power of being the very son of God, Jesus let go of it to come to earth. And instead of spending everything that he had to try to be seen as something, he was willing to become nothing. When offered power and acclaim with no sacrifice by Satan, he was willing to go without. When it would be easier for him to give up, He'd be willing to be misunderstood and mistreated for our sake. Jesus comes and dies for us, for our sin, in our place. He dies that we wouldn't have to die. As Paul puts it, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Don Carson summarizes it really nicely for us like this. He says, If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And he sent us a saviour. The book of Exodus is God's radical, gracious work 
to rescue us from those troubles outside, but most importantly, from those troubles inside, that we ourselves could be renewed, could be restored, could be redeemed, could be everything he had always made us to be. Let's pray.